This episode was recorded in July at a time of extraordinary change in UK politics. So some references will have dated and some people will have changed jobs. But the themes remain as urgent as ever. One of our guests for this episode is Caroline Lucas, a Green MP, whom we invited to appear on the show in her capacity as chair of the all-party parliamentary group on climate change. Members from other parties were invited also, but they couldn't attend. Welcome to Future Makers, your invitation to cutting-edge debates on our changing society with leading thinkers from the University of Oxford and beyond. With the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warning that policymakers have limited time to keep global warming to a maximum of 1.5 degrees C, beyond which the climate-related risks to humans and natural systems rise quickly, it seems clear that we need to act sooner rather than later to prevent a crisis the like of which humanity has never faced before. This may be why we're seeing increasing public action from the likes of Extinction Rebellion and the Youth Strikes for Climate. But what action have we seen from governments in the UK and beyond since this stark warning was delivered by the IPCC? And what confidence can we have in our leaders to bring about the changes we need over the next decade? With me to discuss this today are Dr Ryan Rafferty, a political scientist at the University of Oxford, working with the Climate Econometrics Project, Tristram Walsh, President of the Oxford Climate Society, a student society dedicated to developing informed climate leaders, and our host here today at Portcullis House, Caroline Lucas, MP, Green Party politician and Member of Parliament for Brighton Pavilion. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thanks very much for having us. Caroline, I'd like to start with you, if I may. What action has there been from politicians at Westminster since the IPCC report? And what's your view of what's happened? Well, I would say that there's been a lot of warm words, but actually very little actual action. So we've had a a government that has agreed that there is a climate emergency. There was a, a motion that was put down on the floor of the House to say there was a climate emergency. And yes, the government didn't try to defeat that. So by default, they've kind of said, yes, there's a climate emergency. We've had, of course, as well, the Committee on Climate Change with its report about how government could reach net zero by 2050. And the government has accepted that report. So so that's good. But the trouble is, you know, as Chris Stark himself said, the chief executive of the Climate Change Committee, just by having a target, that doesn't actually really change anything. What we need is real policy on the ground. And that's the bit that worries me because, you know, this is a true story that Michael Gove, our environment secretary, at the same time as he was acknowledging that there was indeed a climate emergency, on the same day and more or less in the same breath, he was also celebrating the fact that the court case that had been taken out against the idea of expanding Heathrow Airport, he he was celebrating the fact that that court case had failed. So on the one hand, he's saying, yes, there's a climate emergency. On the other hand, he's saying, but we're going to go ahead and expand Heathrow Airport. And as we know, aviation is one of the fastest growing sources of greenhouse gas emissions. So there's nice warm words. You know, it's good, of course, that there is now this this legal commitment to reach net zero by 2050. But there's also a debate that A, that's not fast enough. And B, even if it were, we don't have the policies in place to get there. So are you suggesting that the politicians who come out with these warm words don't really believe them and are just sort of kicking it down the road to 2050 
that target is never going to come back to haunt them, is it? It's very easy to commit to do things in 2050. You know, I could tell you I'm going to walk on water in 2050, but probably not many of us will be around to see whether or not I actually managed to to do that. So, I mean, whether or not they actually believe it is a really interesting question. I, I would love to know what's going on in their heads, but they certainly are not committed to doing what would be necessary to meet this target. It's interesting, the word climate emergency or the words climate emergency, I mean, the clue is in the word emergency. You'd expect something to happen fast. You know, you don't dial 999 and ask for a fire engine in 30 years time. You know, when you dial 999, you want the fire engine now. And yet there's nothing in place that would really address the climate to challenge with the speed that's that's needed. And I would argue that one of the reasons for that, at least, is that the government is, is scared of putting in place bold policies that might prove to be unpopular with the public. I have to say that I think they're probably underselling what the public would accept. I think if there were some real leadership there, the public would go a long way along that road. And particularly if there were incentives and there are so many win-wins, I mean, why wouldn't you want to insulate every single home in Britain? That gets people's fuel bills down. It creates hundreds of thousands of jobs. It more or less pays for itself quite quickly because of the taxes going back to the revenue. So it is a bit hard to really understand why the government isn't moving on this, given that lots of the policies that we would need are no regrets policies. In other words, they are policies that would be good for people as well as for the environment. But it's not only this government that's been slow to act, right? I mean, we've known about this for quite a long time. I take it this is this has been a problem with successive governments. That is true. So it's not down to just one or two cynical politicians or anything like that. You're right to say that it isn't just this government, but I think it's perhaps less excusable given that the evidence we now have about the need to act is greater now than we've had before. Right. And how do you see this government by comparison with governments in other countries? Well, it talks a better talk. And, and, and to be fair, when it comes to international climate negotiations, it has played a positive role in terms of pushing the other countries to be more ambitious. But there is this extraordinary gulf between what it says and what it actually does at home. That's the problem, I think, that although internationally this government is seen as a very positive one, and previous governments, of course, had things like the Climate Change Act, which was a groundbreaking piece of legislation that came up under the Labour government. But the proof of the pudding is whether or not there are policies in place to deliver it. And at the very same time as we've got a Climate Change Act and we've got a declaration of a climate emergency, and we've got the 2050 net zero uh, target. At the very same time, we've got a government that is expanding aviation, which has more or less put an effective block on onshore wind, that's taken support away from solar, that has slashed zero carbon homes, that has flogged off the Green Investment Bank, you know, the whole litany of policies that are going in exactly the wrong direction. Do you think this is in fact very largely driven by what they think will work with the public? I think there's a combination of issues. I think partly it's around what they imagine would be publicly acceptable and what they can get away with at the ballot box, if you like. But as I say, I think they've got that wrong. I think there's clearly lobbying from big fossil fuel companies who have a vested interest in in the status quo that to, to act as fast as we would need requires serious state intervention. And this government, the Conservative government and the coalition before it, have been sort of fairly much allergic to big state intervention. They want deregulation. They don't want a bigger role for the state. And yet, clearly, if we're to get to where we need to be fast enough, it's going to require some serious state intervention to make sure that the regulation is in place, the tax incentives are in place, and so on and so forth, to get us where we need to be. What do you think is going to improve things at Westminster? Well, an easy answer to that would be, well, when we get loads more Green MPs elected. And, um, <laughs> and and to be fair, I mean, it is true that if you look at those countries where there are more Greens elected, um, unsurprisingly, their 
environmental legislation does seem to be bolder than, than what we have here. To answer your question perhaps more seriously in the, in the short term, I think the role that Extinction Rebellion, the youth climate strikes, David Attenborough, all of these things have played has been really significant. I think it's, it's meant that the climate issue has reached people that perhaps until now haven't been particularly engaged. And I think the more that expands, then perhaps the more politicians here will feel that they have that kind of public permission to go further and faster. Um, but I think it really is important that that pressure stays there on the outside, as well as taking every opportunity that we can on the inside of getting more, um, more, more favorable politicians who will push this agenda too. Right. And when you say getting more favorable politicians... Greens, okay. That's, that's yeah. cut to the chase. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> if I look back on my own career, I sort of feel that I've been trying to work out where I need to be to to make change happen in, a, in, in the most effective way. And so I was starting off, you know, in, in, in NGOs and, and then did a secondment into uh, Whitehall and then worked as a member of the European Parliament and now I'm an MP. But I kind of feel that I've come full circle in a sense that actually it is public pressure <laughs> that that is what pushes politicians to act at the end of the day. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, so Tristram, coming to you as our, our representative of the younger generation here, um, why do you think that there has been this, this sudden upsurge of youth action? And what do you think it will achieve in, in the relatively short term? The, the main question that's wonderful about the youth movement, I think I'm speaking more about the youth climate strikes and slightly less about Extinction Rebellion, uh, for I think reasons have become clear. One of the main things that I find really impressive and promising about this is questions of identification and people's ability to, well, self-identify with the climate movement. Very early on with sort of the environment and the green movement, it was very sort of strongly dominated by movements like Greenpeace. And not many people could really see themselves like that. Like, I mean, these actions of kayaking out to you know, shut down oil rigs was wonderful. And sort of maybe there was a time and a place for that. But very few people in the public could really be like, I'm one of those people. I agree with what they're doing. Um, and then even more when it became mainstream, you have these sort of, I mean, my first, the first time I came across climate change was with an inconvenient truth. And I think for a lot of people, it was probably a big first step for them. And again, this was slightly more, you could identify with that a bit more, but again, it made it a bit, in other countries in the Anglosphere, a bit more of a liberal issue, not really something for all of us. And now finally, it's like, well, we've all been children. We can all identify with doing that. There's no one here who's like, oh, I'm not like that. I mean, children from all generations and backgrounds and types and academic abilities and interests are coming together with outrage at the intergenerational injustices of climate change. And a lot of the difficulty with the action or bringing action for climate change is to do with the sort of uh, the empathy gap and the difficulty that humans, for better or worse, have with identifying with and feeling empathy for and prioritizing issues that are going to happen to other people in time and space or with a different skin color or whatever it is. And so climate change action and the impacts have always seemed very abstract and far from, for example, especially, you know, in the UK, where I come from the countryside, very distant from me. And now we can see, when I go into Oxford, into the streets, here are the people who are going to be affected by this. This intergenerational injustice, that the future generations who are going to be impacted and have their lives potentially upturned by, if there is unmitigated climate breakdown, a complete catastrophe, I can see them. I can look them in the eyes and be like, that's you. This is not some abstract person in the future. And this, I think, has really resonated with a lot of people. And do you think this is going to continue? Do you think these protests that we've seen 
are going to continue with similar intensity in future months and years? This is the big question. They started very, very strongly. And then in the first couple, in Oxford, we saw very large growth. I can't speak for the rest of the world. And what I saw a lot at the protests was people, again, of older ages and parents coming down. They didn't feel threatened by nonviolent actions or civil disobedience. It was a very wholesome sort of inclusive atmosphere to be there with. And so the, the numbers were huge. I mean, you just look at the statistics. A lot of people turned up. The difficulty is one that we have with a lot of these movements of sort of burnout and desensitization. And now it's becoming a monthly thing. How can we keep the interest new? How can we make it so that actually this is still just as urgent? I mean, the government still hasn't done anything. It's not like, oh, we've had this amazing moment of you know, all of the population coming together and cheering and, you know, banging on the doors of Parliament, you know, because, as Caroline just said, not a huge amount has really shifted during that time. These students have very busy schedules and trying to find some way to support them and really expand it. So I, I would like to see more people, older people, getting involved with that and starting to carry it forward so that the youth movement isn't just the youth movement, it's the youth movement that then includes everyone off the back of this. Caroline, I mean, from the point of view of the MPs, how much impact have the youth actions had? I mean, have you seen I think they're huge. significant changes amongst your colleagues? Yes, no, I think so. I mean, it's interesting just today, Prime Minister's questions, I think four out of the five questions that Jeremy asked today were on climate change. And that certainly wouldn't have been the case six months ago. Um, you know, we were kind of berating the fact that he very rarely uh, raised it. So, so now it's a big issue. And certainly now politicians are talking the talk. I mean, it's that's where I come back to. We haven't seen the difference yet in terms of action. But it's certainly something that I think MPs from all parties now know that they have to have a, a reasonable story to tell and they need to be seen to be responsive in, in some way. And I think there's, there is such a moral authority, uh, you know, as Tristram was saying, in a sense, when you're, when you're looking into the eyes of a, of a young person who is telling you that, that your generation is trashing their future. I mean, that is quite a hard one to, to answer. So I, I think that they, they really have made a difference. And the, and the challenge now you know, as Tristan was, was kind of saying, is, is, is how do you keep that pressure and the momentum and the newness and the, and the real challenge that's implicit in, in what they're saying? But on the other hand, a lot of people have been inconvenienced by disruption. Young people are being taken through the courts. There are probably quite a lot of MPs who are on the side of, of clamping down on these things. Well, it's interesting because because normally they they certainly are and and you know in previous manifestations of, of of civil disobedience and so forth that they have been pretty draconian and, and strong on it. But but on this, actually, I think it's quite interesting that their language is 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 very much less you know less aggressive as you might think or, or less I can't think what the word is but less um, forthright in terms of saying this shouldn't be happening. I mean, it's it's really clear that the vast majority. Uh, when it comes to the youth climate strikes, Extinction Rebellion is a little bit different, but with the youth climate strikes, I think it's really clear that the MPs know that they need to be on the side of the young people, uh, and, and they more or less have been. I mean, yeah, so this is like the future voting base. Exactly. And they're not coming out on the streets being like, oh, we want to change this tax ban's tax. They're coming out yeah. for these huge issues. So this is, for many people I'm speaking to, I mean, again, this is in a bubble, in a bubble in Oxford, and I'm speaking to the people coming to the strikes, but this for them is their, their number one voting priority. And as you're saying, it's like, it's not just that the government will then have to spend all of this money at its own detriment for the benefits of other people around the world. Like, so many of these policies, even if you don't care about climate change, are beneficial for the UK and its cities. So, like, decarbonizing transport in London will improve health, uh, you know, the health living standards here. You put a certain amount of money into decarbonizing, but then you get a lot more of that back in reduced health costs for the NHS and things like this. So even without the climate change impacts, it's already beneficial for people to do so. Ryan, I'd be interested in, in your perspective on this. We've got politicians who are apparently rather slow to act, even though they acknowledge that change is needed. We've got increasing 
public action, but it's not clear yet whether the politicians are actually going to react to this in, in the way that the public or some of the public would like to see. How do you think politicians can be held to account to make them act on these things? Governments have before them a massive, multi-decadal, multi-sectoral challenge when it comes to climate change mitigation. And the net zero greenhouse gas emissions targets by mid-century are nothing to sneeze at. And that said, had they started more aggressively 30 years earlier, we'd be in a very different position today. But setting that aside, I think it is significant to note, and I think as citizens we can pressure governments to recognize, that there has been an exponential growth in the number of climate change laws and policies worldwide. Currently, I think the latest estimates from the Grantham Institute at LSE, they have a database of current global climate laws and measures. There are currently over 1,600 laws cross-nationally, cross-jurisdictionally, at least. They don't, get, they don't capture all of them. That number was much less uh, in the 1990s when climate change first arose on the international agenda prominently. In the early 1990s, there were five or six carbon pricing initiatives now with its public promotion in international institutions and across governments and NGOs, that number is closer to about 60. And yet, I think that tells us that the current stock of climate policies and measures and frameworks and targets and commitments are insufficient. And so as citizens, we can take stock of that history, of that recent history, and to not allow politicians to get away with the dubious statement that there is any single panacea. Policies must be multi-sectoral. Yes, some policies like a carbon price can apply economy-wide, but we do really need targeted investments, targeted research and development in particular sectors, in particular communities. Beyond that, I think we can ask which policies so far have been effective at reducing emissions and which haven't. And that's an empirical challenge. It's not exactly easy in the end to evaluate policies based off of their effectiveness in emission, reducing emissions at the aggregate level. Sometimes we can get pretty precise estimates at the sectoral level and that tells us something. But I think we can use that research and continue with that research to inform the kinds of policies that we should be asking politicians to push forward. And that would be a very diverse set of measures that many of which haven't actually come on the table in, in parliamentary proposals and legislation. But what you're giving there is a rather nuanced message. There's, there are quite a lot of different things that need to be done. There's no single button to be pushed and so on. Doesn't that make it both rather difficult for the public to push politicians consistently in a particular direction. It also makes it rather difficult for politicians to sell this as a simple message that is going to command support. I think you're right. There is certainly that tension. But I think it's even more erroneous and problematic to pursue an easy answer, an easy solution. So then that leaves us with asking how can we... <laughs> How can we present this sort of nuanced message that a pu the public, who is rightly activated in pushing forward the youth movement, the Extinction Rebellion, the movement for a Green New Deal in the U.S., how can we inform that kind of policy debate once we take the activism to the parliamentary halls? The Green New Deal right now, currently in the U.S., the movement for Green New Deal is currently trying to consider what are its policy options. And that still is a million-dollar question because... There is, it's a lot easier to market a single policy panacea. 
But in fact, what we need is a professional civil service. And as Caroline said earlier, state investment involves some level of expertise if we're going to reactivate the powers of government to intervene in the economy in positive ways. We're going to need to really put our civil service in charge. And one positive aspect, I think, in the UK story is the creation of the Committee on Climate Change with the 2008 Climate Change Act here. That is an expert-led, independent body that reports to Parliament and to the Cabinet about the country's progress in reducing emissions in accordance with carbon budgets that the committee itself sets and recommends. I think it's easy in this country to take for granted the importance of that as a check and balance against potential backsliding under future governments. It remains to be seen how effective it will be, but the fact that, for example, it is a mechanism for confronting cabinet governments when they fall short of their emissions targets and could also result in legal challenges to the government's failure to act in the future. Is the simple message then that needs to be pushed by the public and maybe by concerned politicians to the public, put your weight behind these administrative moves, behind this committee, give it teeth, make sure that it is able to hold politicians to account and leave the nuance to the experts on that committee or those who are reporting to it? I think that's part of it. And I think the potential challenge with that approach is that the public may be skeptical of a yeah. purely expert-led technocratic approach to this. Um, so it's this, it's the, uh, this tension again between uh, the necessary expertise to carry out certain projects and the types of activities that will be marketable to, to a broad public. Indeed. And when we've had an environment secretary who famously cast doubt on experts and whether the public are, are happy to have them deciding what to do. Caroline, I'd be very interested to hear your reaction. Well, yes, I agree that the Climate Change Committee um, and the regular carbon budgets that they produce is an important um, innovation. But it's not perfect by any means. And one of the things that concerns me about it is that, in fact, I would argue that you've got civil servants who are, to some extent, censoring the advice that they give because they are already putting it through a filter of what they believe is politically possible. And I think that really came out in the most recent report that they did on net zero. They really made a lot of the fact that it would only cost, in their words, only cost between one and two percent of, of GDP to reach net zero by 2050. And they made a lot of the fact that that was the same cost as 80% reductions was going to cost us. But because we're now looking at 100% cuts, in fact, it won't be more expensive because efficiencies have come on so fast and costs have fallen so we can, do the, we can go further for the same cost. But the fact that they were looking at all of this through the lens of how much it's going to cost and how politically acceptable is it going to be, I think, means that they ended up with this 2050 answer, when in fact, from a climate perspective, if you're looking at the climate science, a lot of scientists would say that's too late, it should be sooner than that. And so you've immediately got a contradiction there, where in a sense, I think that the civil servants were kind of working out what was the most politically acceptable proposal to make, rather than what was the scientifically necessary proposal to make. So I have worries about leaving it solely to them. I have worries as well about kind of cutting out the public from the process of deliberation. And I think, you know, if we needed a case study of how not to do this, then we would look at the Gilets Jaunes and, and President Macron, who uh, introduced a, a, a fuel tax, 
at the same time as paying no attention at all to the distributional effects of that, and, and it would have hurt the, the, the poorest, hardest. Uh, and at the same time, adding insult to injury, he also uh, made a big tax cut for those on the highest incomes. So that is how not to do it. If we were going to look at how we should do it, um, I think there's a big role for citizens' assemblies in all of this. In other words, getting the public involved over a period of time with deliberative democracy being fed you know, independent evidence and actually trusting the public to, to, to work out some of these trade-offs because undoubtedly there are difficult decisions to be made and the crucial thing in my view to make sure that, well, both morally because environmental policies shouldn't hit the poorest hardest but also in terms of getting the consent, if you like, the public consent for these policies, social justice has to be at the heart of the transition and that's what makes me excited about the Green New Deal. Now, Ryan was talking about the Green New Deal in the US. I just want to kind of reclaim a bit of that for the UK because in fact, it was people from the Sunrise Movement and from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's office who came to the UK to see how a group of us had been uh, working on a Green New Deal back in 2007. Now, admittedly, it didn't get anything like the coverage and the traction that, that she has got and all credit to the US for, for that and the Sunrise Movement being instrumental in, in that and putting a real movement behind the set of policy ideas. But it did originate in the UK, and since it's had so much traction now in the US, lots of groups in the UK are looking again at this Green New Deal proposal and the kind of narrative that goes along with it. Because I think you need a story to tell the public, if you like, to, to present to, to policymakers and, and, and others. And, and I think the story about how you can have a very fast transformation if the political will is there... And of course, the Green New Deal looks back to the New Deal of Roosevelt back in the 1930s when he was pulling the US out of the depression it was in at the time. But the fact that what he was able to do was to have this huge, unprecedented investment in public works, get people back into work, you know, really get the economy turned around. I, I think that story about what is possible when you're willing to put the political will in is motivational and is exciting. And I, I think you know, in terms of, of, of how we galvanize people here, it seems to me that although I, I in, in terms of, of where it's at at the minute, the Green New Deal that's being talked about in the UK is not as comprehensive as the one in the US, which, you know, covers almost everything, it seems to me, when it comes to social policy as well as environmental policy. But I think we can learn a lot behind that sense of having a movement behind a set of ideas that are joined up and absolutely bring the social justice element in as well as the environmental justice. Right. I mean, getting the political will in the aftermath of a world war is relatively easy. Getting the political will now is not so straightforward. Which is why I think it's quite interesting that people like Stieglitz and others are calling climate change the Third World War. Now, I know that's quite controversial. Some people really don't like the kind of the, the, the war metaphors. But, you know, we do need something like that kind of framing, that kind of mobilization. You, you know, you need that sense of, of urgency. And I, and I take your point. It's much harder, you know, when it isn't armies massing on the French border, you know, when it's something that, that feels less tangible. But already, as, as, as Tristan was saying, young people are seeing this as very real. They, they are seeing this not as some distant thing that might happen, but something real that is compromising their futures now. And I, and I think we have a responsibility to, to deal with it as we would with any other security threat, because we know, I mean, the evidence is there that the climate crisis is going to be, you know, every bit as damaging and actually far more than any kind of military uh, intervention that we could imagine. And I get the impression that young people are a lot more politicised now than they were, shall we say, before 2016. I think that's uh, right. Partly because of Brexit, maybe largely yeah. because of Brexit. Yeah. You, you think that can be harnessed to... I think it can be harnessed. I think it is being harnessed. So what advice would you give to Tristram and Ooh. 
other <laughs> young so people well. <laughs> in his position to, I mean, what would be most effective well, honestly, coming I, from the young people just I, doing I, more of what they're doing? I, I genuinely think that it would be quite arrogant for me, me to do that, not least because I think young people themselves have been so good at you know, framing the asks and, and following up on them and, and having the kinds of debates that need to be had. And it is interesting that amongst the young people's demands is or are citizens' assemblies um, and, and, and young people do want to see a Green New Deal. So, so this is already, I mean, they know what they're about pretty much, I think. So Tristram, things like citizens' assemblies, do you see that as being something that's desirable in itself or particularly associated with, with getting a Green New Deal? Yes, absolutely. I think climate change is absolutely one of the greatest opportunities we have to simultaneously address the, the huge issues of global poverty and environmental crises and potentially to safeguard against military conflict into the future. And I think I'd go even further than that to say, and maybe anyone would disagree with this, that I don't think you could address any of them separately. I think continuing down the path of high carbon growth will lead to environmental damages that will lead to increased poverty. And not tackling poverty will not allow us to use all of our full capabilities to deal with environmental change. So yes, system change, I think, is going to be quite important for this. The difficulty I see is in the time frame. We don't have very long. And so I guess a year and a half ago, I was very in like, yeah, we, we need this sort of deep fundamental system change in the way that like politics is around nationally and around the world. Now I'm a little bit more nervous that we don't have time for that to happen and to come into effect before we would have had to achieve net zero. And so now I'm sort of more leaning towards the whole just get climate change sorted. We'll get some of the system changes there along the way, but we can't rely on change the system and then we'll solve climate change. I think that's too maybe rose-tinted. With regard to citizens' assemblies, I've been going backwards and forwards, with, backwards and forwards on this with a lot of different people. Um, on the one hand, yes, I think it's, I, I very much like the idea of getting greater public participation and really putting power in the people who can make some of these sort of social decisions that are not so economically black and white, for example. The difficulty I see is, and this is, I, just, I think I can struggle to say this sort of politically correctly, in giving those people the tools to make decisions effectively and not just going back to sort of level one politics. So some of the people I've spoken to from Extinction Rebellion are like, it will be great because the Citizens' Assembly will be deeply informed by experts in the field. And this sounds a little bit to me like what you were talking about earlier, where you sort of end up with a technocracy that's filtered through a Citizens' Assembly. And it sort of is a little bit like what, from my non-political experience, kind of what government's meant to be like. You have people who are voted into power, they're informed by experts, to then make the best decisions. And so I'm curious, yeah, I mean, what do you think about the Citizens' Assembly and how different would it be? And could such a thing actually be implemented with time remaining to see the huge transformations that we need? In my view, the, the move towards pure technocracy could be a disaster because as we've seen, experts have been wrong on many issues, including related to climate policies and exclamations of what will work and what won't. They've been wrong on a lot of things, and I think it's important to recognize that even experts in this field can be wrong. But I don't think that the employment and importance of civil servants in the, in the policymaking challenge ahead of us is mutually exclusive with the involvement of citizens groups and deliberation and NGOs of, of a great variety. 
In Sweden, I think there's a policymaking model that we might be able to get behind where there is a kind of seamless ecosystem of ideas and policy proposals. And anytime there's any comprehensive piece of legislation that does really involve significant aspects of the economy and that will have long-term effects, they do involve these sorts of citizen assemblies where they're invited to give input to civil servants and there's this kind of tripartite three-way assembly that meets between parliament, civil service, and citizen groups, and industry, in fact. And that might sound idealistic, and it might sound also to others like the ideal of deliberative democracy. But Sweden passed quite a few of its welfare reforms that have, relative to other advanced industrial states, kept the welfare state intact. A lot of those reforms are passed under such uh, deliberative systems. And so I do have confidence um, that, that that that's a model moving forward that we should really look at. Sweden, it's also worth pointing out, as well as in Denmark and maybe to a lesser extent in Norway, their sustenance of a very generous welfare state, I'd say relatively generous to other countries, provision of universal health care, uh, universal access to affordable college education, in some cases free college education, paternity and maternity leave, and so on and so forth, has created a buffer for lower income households against which they feel less of the effects of rising energy prices. So a lot of the challenge with imposing a carbon tax is the um, quite obsessive focus of politicians being averse to uh, rising energy prices, producing some sort of electoral backlash where it comes back to bite them at the next election. And that's what we saw in France. And I think that's indicative of the fact that we may need this sort of new institutional design behind our policymaking apparatus. We need to rethink it. The suggestion here is that the citizens who are participating in a citizens' assembly may welcome higher taxes more than voters at the ballot box. Because politicians typically assume, rightly or wrongly, that at the ballot box, rising taxes in Britain spells electoral failure. That's not quite what I meant, but maybe I can put it more clearly like this. Under the condition that citizens have a generous uh, social safety nets, which in themselves may require citizens' assemblies to bring about in many of the advanced industrial economies we're talking about. I mean, that's a far cry from what many, my, my country included, my, especially the United States. We've decimated the public sector and um, we've totally transformed the view of the state's role in the economy. And to kind of ratchet that back up to more egalitarian, relatively more egalitarian levels that could then in turn support climate action that will come at a cost, but that if complemented with a buffer in our socioeconomic system could, could be carried out much more successfully. Now, I, I hear Tristram's point, and the, my only concern about the, the timing issue is, is that we may not be able to do all of this at once as quickly as some of us would like. And that's my biggest fear is that, well, you're really adding to the list of to-do items when you start to ask for comprehensive welfare reform as well. Indeed. I mean, Caroline, with regard to citizens' assemblies, I, have I got this right, that the, the point of this is, is partly to take power away from the party machines whilst retaining democracy? So the, the assemblies are there as, if you like, as representatives of the people making decisions 
in, in a way that takes it away from the, the two parties battling against mm. each other. Mm. And, and also in the light of having an awful lot more independent evidence than is usually available via the media or social media is still worse. And so and so people are, are, are deliberating based on a, a range of information that's that's put in front of them. And, you know, the precedent is in places like Ireland, where, you know, it was used when it came to the issues around abortion, for example. So it, it has been used on very controversial issues in the past, not quite as multi-complex, perhaps, as as, um, uh, as climate change. But, but, but just to, to clarify where the distinctive part of this is, when you have uh, MPs arguing across the floor of the House, one presumes that they are generally pretty well informed. They've got access to lots of information. <laughs> and, Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it often gets into a ding-dong battle, us versus them. Yeah. Uh, and I take it that the point of the assemblies is that that you take that factor out of it. Is, is that right? I think that's certainly part of it, yes, and it allows you to go into much greater depth. So some, some of these assemblies, you know, will we'll meet for, I don't know, every other weekend for for four or five months even. I mean, some of them can be that long. So so the amount of information and I evidence see. you can get in that time is something that, frankly, we, we never have on the floor of the House in, in Parliament. Um, uh, and is there evidence that in a very potentially polarised issue, take Brexit, for example, perhaps the most polarising issue we've had for a long time, is there any evidence that having a citizens' assembly, that kind of structure, might lead with a very polarised issue like that to have discussion that's over time less polarised? Because I can imagine that, that if, if you were to put a mixture of pe British people into a room now and get them arguing or discussing about mm. Brexit, mm. it might be just as polarised as discussion amongst political, between political parties. Part of my critique would be about the way we do politics at Westminster. I mean, I, I would be perfectly prepared to accept that there would be ways of, of organising our, our political life where we could have the debates more along the lines that, that you're suggesting that a Citizens' Assembly would have them. But right now, we know that the House of Commons Chamber is, is designed to be adversarial. The whole point of it is to score points off one another, not to actually illuminate the subject. Um, you know, people are whipped. So even if they do believe something different, they can't vote that way without sacrificing their own, you know, their own uh, careers. So we've, we've got a system that actually doesn't help us shed light on complex issues. It doesn't allow us to express nuance or doubt or really wanting to hear the other side. And, and, I, and I think this is where our current political processes and our, our democratic procedures are letting us down in the most fundamental way. Because if we're serious about the gravity of, of the climate change crisis in particular, then that kind of political discourse doesn't help us resolve it. And are you optimistic about the prospects of bringing appropriate change <coughs> in time? I'm always optimistic because I think if we weren't, then we'd all kind of go home and <laughs> be very depressed. Um, but I think it's a challenge. I certainly think it's a very serious challenge to our politics that it's going to require people to also think uh, in the long term, and we know how short term our current political system is. Generally, the governments don't like to look beyond the next sort of, you know, electoral cycle, much less 15 years or 50 years. And yet, as, as Tristram was saying earlier on, climate change is the intergenerational issue. And so how do you factor in the views of, of, of you know, populations as yet unborn, as well as populations on the other side of the world, who needs to be heard, really, in terms of the, of the decisions that we're making? So uh, there are different kinds of, 
of processes that other governments have experimented with. Close to home, you've got in Wales, the uh, new kind of commissioner for future generations who's been put in place thanks to the new piece of legislation around well-being uh, in the Welsh government. There are examples from Hungary and a number of other countries where they've experimented with ideas of ombudspeople for future generations to try to find some way. It sounds cumbersome and in a way it is, but how do you hear those voices that aren't in the room right now but whose futures are going to be massively affected by the decisions that we're taking now. Amid this this scepticism about experts, Caroline, do you think universities can play a role in shifting the mood of either the public or politicians or hastening action? I think universities have got a, a vital role to play. And, and although, yeah, there are some who have said that... Uh, that the experts have had too much of a voice. I, I would not be one of those. And I think the public themselves actually would be very receptive to hearing more from, from academics who, who certainly have a better reputation than, than politicians, I think. So I, I think universities have a, a, a big role to play. I would just add, though, that one concern I have, not specifically over climate change, but generally, is that as funding goes down for universities, then they're more likely to be looking for uh, private donations and so forth, corporate donations, and we do need to make sure that what's coming out of the universities is um, as objective as it possibly can be. I know we could have a big debate about what is objectivity, but when you've got a particular uh, research theme that is being funded by a particular corporate interest, then I think we need to know that at the time when that's being uh, revealed. Indeed. Though it has to be said that the universities have been pretty strong in what they've said about climate change and the reality they of have. it. They have. To date, they yeah. certainly have. And long may it continue. <laughs> Another issue here is the international dimension. Uh, suppose we are able to bring about in Britain whatever political changes you would wish. Citizens' assemblies and so on, lots of, active, lots of action from younger people, changing the views of politicians in the direction of, of wanting to do something serious about climate change and in haste. That's not going to be any use, is it, if all the rest of the countries of the world are continuing as before? Uh, or do you think Britain can actually be a leader here in a way that will make a difference? There's quite a lot of uh, uh, things to unpack in, in that question. I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that there are a number of countries that uh, are going more, more ambitiously than, than Britain. So it's not the case that we're somehow this extraordinary outlier and that everyone else is, is behind us. To the contrary, there are plenty of countries who've got far more ambitious targets when it comes to uh, emission reductions in certain sectors. I think Britain has a particular responsibility as the first country into the industrial revolution. If you look at the cumulative impact of emissions in the atmosphere, we are disproportionately responsible for a lot of them. So it feels to me that we have a moral responsibility uh, to go further and, and faster. I think we do have the opportunity to show global leadership. And, you know, when it comes to leaving the EU, that is not going to help us have the leadership that we could have and should have and, and have had in the past, ironically. So it, it seems to me that exactly at this time, we need to be forging those international relationships and using our influence to push ambition from, from others, as we've done in the past. And it would be a great shame if we stood away from doing that right now. So I think we, we can show leadership. We have in the past. But in order to do that with real credibility 
And in order to be good hosts, for example, when when and if COP26, the next big international uh, meeting happens next year on climate change, then we have to have our own house in order. That's the crucial thing. And at the moment, we are off target to meet those carbon budgets we were talking about earlier that the Climate Change Committee set out. We're off target to meet the the, the fourth and fifth club budgets. Uh, The Committee on Climate Change have said we're way off when it comes to any new budgets that are likely to be put in place. So we've got a big piece of work to do. We've got a moral responsibility to do it but we've also got I think the the capability to do it and 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 we have the potential to show leadership as well another element of the international sphere related to this issue is international trade and the latest studies show that around 25 percent of global co2 emissions are embodied in internationally traded goods that's to say that they're produced in countries different from where they're ultimately consumed And the current accounting system is based on production emissions, meaning emissions that your country produces within your jurisdiction. And what that means is that as the UK reduces its emissions, the share of its emissions embodied in trade will increase over time, particularly if many developing countries we import from and rich countries we import from are not doing the same in reducing their emissions. And so then the question comes up, what can we do in the sphere of international trade policy to potentially mitigate this problem, which will only increase in severity as we go along, because a lot of these investments are just simply not happening fast enough. Thank you. Tristan? On a global scale, uh, there's been some sort of discussion around the difficulty of asking, or the hypocrisy even, of asking these developing nations to develop whilst completely skipping over the high fossil fuel development parts and sort of them to join up with us at this level of development whilst not going through what we've done. And I think there's a really interesting opportunity here as well if Britain and these so-called richer countries could decarbonize very fast, we can take a lot of the learning and reduce a lot of the costs in these developing technologies and processes for the developing countries that by the time they're ready to then take on this technology, it's already sort of cheaper for them to do so. They have a little bit more time to get there because they already have much lower emissions. And so this, I think, is a very promising way, it sounds like, to reduce some of the inequalities in making this transition to a a green economy globally. Aside from the finance issues, we ought to be, I think, promoting a new system of carbon accounting in the goods we consume. We know the fat and cholesterol content of the foods we eat in the supermarket. And that has helped uh, bring about all sorts of dietary trends and changes in people's lifestyles. What if we had knowledge of the carbon content uh, more explicitly in some way in the goods and energy services we consume. If you give consumers that information, they'll be more empowered to make smart decisions when they consume energy and when they go about their daily lives, whether it's driving to work or flying on a plane. And that would be better for everyone. And it would, it would also potentially incentivize companies to rethink their supply chain investments. Mm-hmm. Where do they get their products from? Well, if there's public pressure for them to do the right thing, I think it'll all start with a carbon accounting system. I think it would be really good as well just to stop the government from trying to make out that they're doing better than they are, you know, because they'll often say that they've reduced their emissions by 40 percent since, you know, since 1990. But they've done that not least because they've outsourced a whole load of manufacturing to China and it now appears on China's balance sheet, not ours. And if it started to appear on our balance sheet, then our responsibility for global climate change would be far more visible. And I think that would be a very good spur to more action as well. 
And alluding to what you said earlier, Caroline, we're far more likely to be able to influence the rest of the world in taking up that sort of methodology if we can persuade our European colleagues to do it. Uh, So uh, Brexit, unfortunately, may give us significantly less clout in that respect. That's absolutely right. Yet another reason to oppose it. Well, thank you very much. That's been a fascinating discussion. Just before we finish, one of the placards I've seen in the street has been system change, not climate change. And that resonates with quite a lot of what we've talked about here. Is there time for system change in time to stop climate catastrophe? And what can we do to bring that about? Ryan? If you ask the question historically, most major energy system transformations from one primary source of energy to another, for example, the transition from predominant reliance on coal to oil and gas uh, in the early 20th century, took a minimum of 50, 60, 70 years. The historical perspective may make us uh, be a little bit less hard on ourselves. But there's nothing to suggest that history, in this case, will repeat itself, that sort of timescale, because this time it really does need to be different. System change, not climate change, is, I think, a really good motto. That doesn't necessarily mean dismantling the roots of private industry and innovation, but it does mean that private corporations are going to have to step up to the plate. It can't just be the citizens' groups and politicians. And we know, for example, that most of the investment, you could argue, has to come from the private sector. And with that in mind, the, jo- the role of citizens, I think, is to put outside pressure and ideally inside input into what governments do next. The role of governments is to change expectations, that we are really on the path to net zero emissions, to build those sorts of expectations among businesses and investors. That is our end game net zero emissions by 2050. That's where we're going. And if governments can instill that kind of confidence that that's where we're going, that will then in turn empower the private sector to do its job. And currently it's not, arguably. Uh, BP is investing in large offshore oil and gas drilling. Uh, Shell, another company with operations largely in the UK, Um, has a mixed record. But you're suggesting that if the government makes clear that that's where things are going, the private sector is is able to turn its tank around relatively quickly. That could really turn things around. And that's precisely what you've seen in several of the pioneering countries, uh, such as Sweden, who I mentioned earlier, that really did set stable expectations uh, for market participants early on that now has cumulatively resulted in really positive green investments across the economy. Right, and in a lot less than 60 or 70 years. Thank you. That would be systemic change. (laughs) Thank you very much. Tristram. Yeah, so following on from that, I think it's interesting to touch on the different systems that we have at play here. So on the one hand, absolutely, we need to change, I guess, the systems of the way that international business and local business is done and the way that it's currently exploiting things and treating the environment as an externality. That definitely needs to change. And socially, we can start to integrate some of these more cooperative methods of doing uh, governance, which will, again, lead to the stability for the investments needed. On the economic side, I'm slightly more hesitant that the system change can happen this fast. There's a lot of discussion, I think, with the government, and a lot of the, I think, the vacillating comes around, can we afford to do this now, and when can we afford to? Increasing the evidence we're seeing is that we can't afford not to do this, and the faster we act, the cheaper it will be. Nevertheless, emissions pathways to get to one and a half degrees or two degrees 
or very, very commonly require significant negative emissions in the second half of the century. And that's going to be quite expensive. It's going to require a huge new global industry. So finding some way to, again, to get the investments, to get the economy healthy, taking perhaps those easier low-hanging fruits like the profits from sort of improving the installation of buildings, and then using that to then fund and stimulate the market and invest that into the technologies that we will almost definitely need at the second half of the century is going to be very important. And again, to get to that governmental stability in the policy, I think we need to educate around the opportunities that it provides. A lot of the discourse recently has been on like, if we don't do this, we're doomed, and this sort of catastrophe narrative. But increasingly, it seems to me from just talking to all sorts of people that actually there's a huge opportunity. And I think this is a great positive that we can then move forward to the country and to the world. Thank you. Caroline? Well, I think that we, we certainly do need systems change and, and we need economic systems change. And I accept that uh, the scale of what needs to happen is is very big and the timescale is very small. And so it is, you know, the greatest challenge, literally, I think, that the human race has ever come up against, in a sense. But there's just some couple of statistics that, that brings us home. So on the one hand, you've got the international scientists saying that we need to be net zero by 2050. But over that same time period, the global economy is due to treble in size because all of the countries of the world are pursuing a growth-based economic model and they all want to chase more and more GDP, gross domestic product. And so the upshot is that if we're not careful, we're going to be having to decarbonize an economy that is three times bigger than the one we've got now. And no matter how ambitious you might be around the idea of decoupling consumption emissions from growth, the bottom line is there's no example anywhere in the world where decoupling has happened fast enough and in an absolute way to mean that we can carry on with the growth as we as we do right now. So I think one of our biggest challenges is to move to so-called post-growth economies, to stop measuring the success of an economy simply by whether or not GDP is going up or down, because we know that GDP is a pretty useless measure of anything that's really telling us something very helpful about whether or not people are having better lives, whether or not we're on track to, to, to keep below 1.5 degrees. So, you know, I think those kinds of changes need to happen to our, our economy very fast. And on the one hand, that's an enormous challenge. But just to pick up on Tristram's last point, it is also an extraordinary opportunity. And I just wanted to end by describing a cartoon, which is probably a silly thing to try to do on a podcast. But anyway, my favorite cartoon has a professor in front of a whiteboard uh, and she's in her lecture theatre and on the whiteboard she's listed all of the advantages of moving to a zero carbon economy. So, you know, free public transport, local organic food, kids playing in the streets again, properly insulated homes, you know, a whole set of really positive things. And then there's a speech bubble coming out from one of the students in the class saying, but what if climate change is a hoax and we've created a better world for no reason? And that idea that we can create a better world has to be at the heart of this because we're not going to get where we need to be by going out there and talking about hair shirts and, you know, shivering around a candle in a cave because that is not going to persuade anyone to do anything. Whereas if we can paint a compelling enough picture that a zero carbon world is not only necessary, but it's also desirable, then we might just get there in time. Well, thank you very much. That's a very nice note on which to finish. And uh, thank you very much, Caroline, for hosting us here at Port Cullis House. Great it's pleasure. been a pleasure to have this discussion. Thank you also, Ryan and Tristram. Thank you. Thank you. My thanks again to Caroline, Ryan and Tristram for their time this week. And also to all of our listeners to Future Makers. We hope you're enjoying our series. If you are, please give us a rating, leave us a review and let us know what you enjoy the most. Next time, 
we'll be talking about how we can build a greener country in the UK. Until then, I'm Peter Millikan, and you've been listening to Future Makers.